In this evening, we are still in chapter number six. We will start with this trophy number 16. Last time, we just finished with uh, shloka number 15. In the verses number 16 and 17, Krishna makes one of the very beautiful, typical statements. As I often said during this commentary, there are some shlokas from Bhagavad Gita which are very well known, which are very often quoted, such as yoga is skillfulness in action, which some people use as a definition of yoga in general, and so many others which at various occasions we quote, they are part of the treasury of the Indian spirituality. They are part of the basic foundation of the fabric upon which the, the warp, on which the whole fabric of the Indian spirituality is weaved on. In the similar way, the coming two verses they are also some of those famous verses quoted often. And the first of them, number 16, says, Verily, yoga is not possible for him who eats too much, not for him who does not eat at all, not for him who sleeps too much, not for him who is always awake or who keeps awake, O Arjuna. This is the middle path as expressed by Krishna. While Buddha expresses the middle path starting from the metaphor of a string of a lute, and that if you stretch the string too much, it will snap, and definitely it will not produce good sounds. And if you stretch the string too little, it will be too loose to produce sounds. And by this, Buddha simply says, do not practice extremism in your spiritual practice. <clears throat> and uh, Buddha himself had experienced it himself. He had started practicing spirituality with some teachers who thought that only extreme practices can liberate the spirit from the body. And those people were practicing tapas, tapasya of extreme forms, such as the tapasya that in one day you eat one grain of rice and you increase with one grain of rice per day until on the full moon or the new moon you get to eat the flabbergasting amount of 15 grains of rice per day and then you decrease back to one and you go like this on a cycle. And of course everybody practicing such a diet is first of all in danger in a while to simply die of starvation, of subnutrition, and definitely has to develop something paranormal. But still, everybody in yoga knows that practicing such an extreme tapasya might activate your Vishuddha chakra and the paranormal city of collecting energy directly through your Vishuddha chakra, cosmic energy which helps you to survive such as is happening or it has happened to many people who practice those kinds of skills, those kinds of disciplines, but in itself an arousing of Vishuddha Chakra, even paranormal of nature or in nature, 
cannot make one reach enlightenment. It's far from the actual target. And that although it may bring your consciousness higher, make you more detached from physical things, kill the sense of taste, make you really detached from the energies of Svadhisthana Chakra and the instinct of eating, and together with it, of course, such a low-protein diet, dry up everything in the process. Again, although it would diminish your Svadhisthana and increase your Vishuddha, some people may look upon it like, okay, it brings you at least closer to the target. At least it does a few steps. But Buddha says, yet when you look at it, it's not a practice which will lead to nirvana by itself, and therefore, as such, it is useless. It is nothing else but an extreme asceticism. It is nothing else but a tapasya. It may generate paranormal abilities, siddhis, but it will not generate the spiritual realization. And Buddha himself, although he started practicing this terrible suppression, this terrible austerities, fortunately, he realized in good time that those austerities were not the key to enlightenment. And then he actually went out of this diet and started eating some more relaxed food. And the people who were part of the same group, part of the same discipline, in the beginning they were very, very disappointed. They thought that Buddha had fallen off the path. They thought that Buddha had lost his self-discipline. They thought that Buddha had lost his willpower and he simply caved in, that he simply had given in to the pressure of an animal instinct and that Buddha therefore had simply relapsed and had become nothing more than a glutton with very poor excuses for anything which would follow. And that is why Buddha, with a vengeance, so to speak, at a later time he comes precisely to those monks which had shunned him and he preaches to them his enlightenment. He said, you actually thought I fell off the path, but actually my decision and the practice which followed has taken me to a much higher place and that higher place is the nirvana, the enlightenment that all of us were looking for. And I just came to tell you that I found the nirvana and I know the way to nirvana and that the terrible austerities to which you subject yourselves is not leading to nirvana. And if you want, I can guide you along the path. That's the first sermon of Buddha in which he defines the four noble truths and he spins the wheel of Dharma. This, this definition in which Buddha says what you witnessed was not gluttonry, it was just common sense. I was in a trip together with you, and we were all in a masochistic, extremist trip, in which our mind thought that if normal people eat, then to be enlightened you have not to eat. Some people think everybody sleeps, and eight hours of sleep is a real luxurious, lazy, pathetic, flabby lifestyle, and therefore you should practice vigils. You should sit up at night and do prayer, do meditation, 
this diminish your sleep to less and less and less. This being encouraged also by the fact that some grand ascetics and some great yogis apparently were going also in that direction, such as Ramakrishna Paramahamsa is famed, it is fabled, that he was sleeping somewhere between two, three hours every 24 hours, like extremely little compared to the average person. And again, this, this leads to a certain culture, which is not only in India, it is in Buddhism, it is in Christianity, it is in Sufism and many other disciplines, especially those that practice austerities, in which people tend to believe that increasing the austerities, you increase your chance to reach nirvana. And Buddha says, perhaps within some limits, your tapasya is useful, but if you push it beyond the common sense, it becomes an extreme. The statement of Buddha reconfirmed by Krishna here in Bhagavad Gita is that the mind goes into extremes. The mind loves somebody and that somebody treats you with neglect and then you start detesting that somebody. That simply says, once you express adulation, once you express ab abhorrence and anger. These are the extremes of the mind. And consciousness, the supreme consciousness, God if you prefer, is always on the middle path, not on those extremes. Those of you who studied in Agama the law of three, as announced by Uspensky in the name of the teachings of Gurdjieff, you know that the, this law of three is very important, that it says between every two opposites, between every two extremes, there is a midpoint which transcends them. Between Ida and Pingala, between Yin and Yang, there is a point which is called Sushumna, the middle channel, which is Madhya, which is pure consciousness, which is the supreme consciousness, which is the spiritual realization, and which therefore is neither minus nor plus, and it can't be compared to them. The three points are like on a triangle, not on a line. The midpoint is not placed like on a seesaw, mid of the others. The third point is placed somewhere above, building a triangle with them, because this midpoint is exactly the goal, the interstitial void, the median void. It is exactly Sahasrara, the Sushumna Nadi leading to Sahasrara, to the crown chakra. And therefore, Buddha has discovered empirically, not technically, like in Kundalini Yoga, like you learn in this school with chakras, polarity, nadis, and all that, but Buddha discovers philosophically, metaphysically, a thing rediscovered by every culture. And that is this midpoint which is above, which is something different. That's why this midpoint requires a leap in consciousness. Buddha, therefore, has expressed if you want to reach nirvana, you have to practice the middle path, not the left, not the right, but the middle path. There shouldn't be too much of this, there shouldn't be too much of that. If you don't sleep, you are going to develop new roses. If you sleep too much, 
you are going to develop some laziness, some pathological heaviness. If you eat too much, if you eat too little, things are going to go in a sort of, in a sort of unbalance, imbalance, and then yoga becomes more difficult. This being said, again, yoga, I'm sorry, uh, Buddha himself expresses this principle and it, it exists in many traditions. Not in many traditions it is expressed as clearly as that. And there is always the feeling that the spiritual practitioners are extreme. For example, Jesus himself often gives the impression of being an extreme fellow. He says, if your right arm upsets you, cut it off. Because it is better to reach to the kingdom of heaven without your right arm than not to reach at all. In which he means, therefore, you have to be determined beyond life and death. There should be nothing which should stop you. Don't allow any weakness or any attachment to stop you from your spiritual path. And yet, Jesus is not preaching extremism. The fathers of the desert and the great Christian mystics that followed in the footsteps of Christ, they knew these things and they even say it very clearly. There are people who fast too much because they fast too much, they start losing their teeth, they start losing their vitality, they start losing other things. Even the brain needs lots of calories, carbs, sugar, fats to function. So if you really push your diet beyond a certain limit, maybe your animal part, the body, will be somehow subdued by reducing it to starvation. But your brain is immediately starting falling apart. You can't even think clearly if you fast too much and you deprive your brain of the necessary nourishment. And then if you destroy your brain... What sort of spiritual practice is that? That's why the fathers of the desert and others, they say practicing austerities beyond a certain limit becomes equivalent to suicide. It is equivalent to the great sin of suicide. Some people suicide themselves by throwing themselves off a cliff and some people suicide themselves by not eating and not sleeping. And the mystics, even of Christianity, which is such an ascetic path, they say, if you do that, you go to hell. You don't reach the kingdom of heaven because you make yourself guilty of suicide. The law, you are not allowed to destroy yourself because you have not created yourself. Only who creates is allowed to destroy. Only the one who holds life and death in its hands can be allowed to play with that. Since you are not able to create life, universes, realities, or yourself, you are not allowed to destroy yourself. That is not your responsibility. It's not your choice. And thus, this statement exists in a veiled way in Christian mysticism and in many others, which simply says the human mind thrives on extremes. The human mind thinks that, oh, now you are doing very much of this, now you are doing very much of the opposite. Either you love or you hate, or, but the truth is somewhere else. 
And because of this, this, this statement is very, very important and it is worth it that you meditate on it often. Here Krishna mentions too. He says yoga indeed is not for him to eat too, eat too much, nor for him who does not eat at all, O Arjuna, like Buddha was trying not to eat at all. It is not for him who is too much given to sleep, not yet for him who keeps awake. Because he says, I cannot sleep like an animal. I'll sleep when I'll be dead. Now I want to be with God and give homage to God. So I shall stay up the whole night and do prayer and vigil. It's a beautiful thought that you so much love God or you think you love God because it might not be love. It might be just some psychotic new roses. But you think that you love God so much that you want to pray. That prayer is unhealthy. It is demonstrated in homeopathy that if you take too much of certain substances, then you start praying pathologically. There are people who say, let's pray, let's pray. They pray all the time. <clears throat> Some people would be inclined to say, that's spiritual, isn't it? No, not all the prayer is spiritual because there are people who are off their rook. There are people who are disturbed and then their prayer is marred from the beginning. Their prayer is directed in the wrong way from the beginning. <coughs> they pray with anger. For example, in the Mass, in the Christian Mass, which comes from St. John Chrysostomus, from St. John of the Golden Mouth, a Greek saint from some 17, 18 centuries ago, when the prayers are reiterated, the Mass, the text of the Mass, which I can only approximately translate in English because I haven't seen it formulated in English. It exists on the Internet, of course. Uh, the text of the Mass says, And again, and again, let us again peacefully pray to God. That word is essential because it says, And again and again, let us peacefully pray. I have seen some of these neo-protestant sects which claim to be speaking in tongues and they pray angrily. They shout at God. They make all sorts of gimmicks. They, they do all sorts of ridiculous stuff. That's not the prayer. If they would listen, but they didn't have gurus, teachers. These are self-made men in Christianity who were inspired by the demons and they started all sorts of sects and bizarre things by actually being tricked by the demons. They were not guided by the angels because if they would have listened and if they had a guru to point to them this little detail which is not at all unimportant, they would have said, always when you pray, it must be peacefully because prayer comes from Anahata, Vishuddha. It, it is an expression of gray, of something delicate, refined, exquisite, divine. It's like a whisper of an angel. It is like, a, it is like something coming from the heart. It can become tears of devotion, but it should not become hysterical. It should not become shouting, angry, trembling in epileptic seizure like or anything like this. So, this principle exists everywhere that there should be a common sense. 
in spirituality. There is a common sense in spirituality. And although Jesus says, be determined, plow like a bulldozer through the obstacles and don't let anything stand in your way, Jesus does not mean be schizophrenic and destroy yourself. I remember once the story of a yogi whom I met in my life in the old days who was unfortunately marred with schizophrenia and he did yoga and everybody was amazed what a willpower and what a self-discipline this man has. And a few of us could see this young man had a little bit too much willpower. He was actually neurotic, psychotic. He was practicing in an unhealthy way. And one day... He had the feeling that now he saw God, he saw Jesus, something appeared to him and he knew and, and so on. And then he felt that nothing can afflict him. He is with God, the angel like whispered to him, test it, see for yourself, you are indestructible, God is and so on. And then he took a razor blade and cut a cross on his forehead with a razor blade and he jumped on his head from the first floor, head forward on the cement, not in water or anything, just on a cement floor from the first floor of a building he just to demonstrate that God is with him and he, nothing can happen to him and so on and he was put in a straitjacket for weeks and he got electric shocks in the hospital because he was in an acute schizophrenic crisis this is unfortunately the very difficult to see uh, difference between mental disease especially this personality thing, disorders, and yoga and spirituality and mysticism. Stanislaw Grof, the great modern psychiatrist and psychologist, has said a very wonderful sentence uh, in one of his studies. He said, crazy people, mental patients, are drowning in the same waters in which mystics are swimming with relish. In this perception of something infinite, the mystic finds a fulcrum happiness, realization, fulfillment, peace, and the madman goes more berserk from it and is more tormented by his demons. It's the same. It's like you go out of yourself, but one finds himself and the other one finds chaos and pain in it. That's why it's not necessary to just go outside and have perceptions. Autistic people, schizophrenic people and others, they can have paranormal powers. They can see the future. They can see auras. They can have all sorts of crazy perceptions. This doesn't make them wise. This doesn't make them fulfilled. This doesn't make them happy. This doesn't make them enlightened. And that is exactly where the problem is. Wisdom, as I often say in the metaphysical workshops, I explain this, is something which needs to be found from above, not from below. A human being cannot shoot blindly, hoping to hit God. Because God is like a point of singularity in an infinite universe. God is more difficult to find than the legendary, the notorious needle in the haystack. You don't find God by accident. God finds you. 
And that is why when people go on spiritual paths, exception made of some glorious people like Buddha himself that have been enlightened through grace because they were historical people that had to fulfill a goal for the whole planet and there was a grace which needed them. They were ripe for that mission and they were the right person at the right place. Everybody else goes into enlightenment by initiation. Somebody shows it to them. Even in the wonderful book of Paramahamsa Yogananda, Paramahamsa Yogananda has a chapter somewhere in the middle of the book which is called An Experience in Cosmic Consciousness. He basically says, I was sitting in meditation under the guidance of my guru Sri Yukteswar and suddenly I had my first state of cosmic consciousness, basically a state of samadhi. And he describes it as one of the very few yogis who dared to describe his own state of samadhi because the others wanted to keep it discreet. They didn't want to release the resonance of that except for their pupils, except for the people from who are close under their guidance. Yogananda even put it on paper for everybody. And there is such an amazing teaching in that chapter because, and in the next because Yogananda describes his experience in cosmic consciousness and exactly in the next chapter, Paramahamsa Yogananda goes to his guru and says, Guruji, show me God. And his guru, Sri Yukteswar, basically says in a very patient way, he says, what an imbecile you are because I just put you in samadhi yesterday and now you come to me and you say, show me God, which means... Although you have been in Samadhi, you didn't realize that that is it. Like you had a Samadhi which did not bring full awareness of the awareness. You had a Samadhi, but you are not even, you didn't even able, you haven't even been able to look into it thoroughly. And Yukteswar with patience says, but my dear... This is exactly where God is. You had the experience. Let's look again. Look again into it and see. Because he was expecting God to come with a hammer and hit him on the head. He was expecting God to come like a vision of some sort or something. He did not realize he was expecting something else. And because he did not have that state many times enough and for long time enough, he even probably was about to be a bit disappointed, like, that's all there is? Is this it? But he didn't realize that his guru had opened the door to him for that. And his guru tells him, takes him back into it, not necessarily into the experience, because he could have the experience again, but his guru explains to him. That's an initiation from above. Paramahamsa Yogananda was taken in Samadhi and into God-realization by the hand by Sri Yukteswar, who put him into it and gave him the awareness, the understanding of what is happening, opened this field of understanding for him. For many people, this is not what is happening. And that is why many people, again, they have 
the misunderstanding and we started here actually talking not only about the hysterical deluded people who have visions or something but also especially about people who suffer from neurosis, psychosis and severe mental disorders who although sometimes have perceptions of a deep kind they suffer, they wander blindly, they get lost and eventually they may do even hellish things, although they were on the fringe of the same great thing as Yogananda may have been. But for them, the Holy Spirit did not become peace and salvation and soothing. The Holy Spirit became burning and punishment. As the Christian mystics say, Christian mystics say, pay attention, because the Holy Spirit is not the same for everyone. And for some, if somebody tries to challenge the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, as called in Christianity, before their time has come, then the Holy Spirit will burn you. And in a similar way, the Tantric Gurus of India say, if the Tantric aspirant is not prepared for evolution, Kali will destroy him. You worship Kali and you die. You just get crushed. Kali is simply thinking that you are not good enough for the task and you have to evolve, die, be reborn, maybe die again and then become fit for the great trip. Which of course in the big picture is fine, but for the limited ignorance of the human being is a tragedy. It's like, oh my God then maybe I should not do spirituality. These are the people who are chicken at heart and they don't dare to simply say, okay, it's a roller coaster forever. I am giving myself to God head forward, you know, and if God wants me to be killed and reborn another three times and only then I can be good, let it be so. Let it be according to the will of God. May thy will be done, not mine. If that's the only way, of course, I can ask for compassion. I can ask for clemency. I can ask for grace and mercy. But ultimately, I need to surrender. And kesera, sera, once it is in the hands of the divine consciousness. And that is why I'm saying these things. Because it's very important for you to understand that this middle path is the is the wise solution and the mind and its shenanigans the mind and its chaos the mind and its lack of spirituality because ultimately the mind is not the spirit the your mind always pretends i am you but actually your mind is not you the self is you the witnessing consciousness, the mind is a caricature, the mind is an imposter that mocks you, that pretends to be you. And that is why the mind always tends to take you in extremes. This is what you learn from a guru, from being in the presence of the wise. This is what you learn from reading Bhagavad Gita or Buddha or other or the lives of great yogis or saints or mystics. You learn exactly this. These are examples which show you that although we need to be determined, to be determined does not mean to be an extreme fanatic. 
the extreme fanatics, they lose themselves. In the Tibetan yoga, it says, too much intelligence with too little faith leads to the sin of useless words. Like people become theoreticians. They speak, but they don't do. Too much, that's too much intelligence, but no faith. On the contrary, too much faith with too little intelligence leads to the sin of fanaticism. That's the Tibetan yoga definition of the fanatic. The fanatic is a person who believes and who is stupid. It's a stupid believer. To be enlightened, you need to be a believer and intelligent as well. Because intelligence will give you the correct measure of things. It will give you this common sense and you'll realize this middle path policy. So Krishna is very, very beautiful here. This is repeated often. And yet India is a land of such extremes because people repeat, but they don't understand. They don't believe. Yoga is not possible when eating too much or too little, sleeping too much or too little. And that, believe me, it's not only about eating and sleeping. And the rest is not included. That's valid about everything else in life. Ultimately, yama and niyama are a sort of attempt of mitigating exactly this factor. Like, live a balanced life. Live a harmonious life. Different yogis tried extremes and they regretted it. They repented it. Milarepa lived 30 years on stinging nettles and eventually he changed his diet and he came back to better sentiments. He realized that, that he did 30 years of hard austerity because his mind was afraid of the karma. Because he had killed 35 people and he had a bad karma and he was afraid that he was going to go to hell and he felt that he had to punish himself a lot as a compensation for that. And 30 years later, when he truly became wise, he discovered it was a useless attempt because that's not the way you reach enlightenment. That didn't really help him reach enlightenment. It was a primitive way of punishing himself for the purpose of paying karma the hard way. Paying karma simply through self-frustration. And the list could continue, but this statement which is said by Krishna, it is unfortunately not heeded by many, many people. Many people listen or read what Krishna said, but it doesn't stay in them. It's like the next minute, the next day, they are ready to do some extremism. It is so much acute to see this, in a tantric school where people are looking into the eyes of the dragon, so to speak, where people are catching the bull by its horns, where people are challenging some of the real low things of your being, and then you are confronting some things which other people prefer to choke them down and starve them to death and ignore them and have them buried. And because of this, when you deal with emotions, with challenges like this, it is so easy to see people going into extremes 
and it is always the function of a guru to temper these extremes. For example, Ramakrishna was reviving people that he felt they were dull, but Ramakrishna was calming down people that were too hot. Like when people were too hot, Ramakrishna made them practice less, gave them some karma yoga, cracked a joke, told them, come on, chill out, have some sense of humor. When people took themselves too seriously and went, because then Ramakrishna knew this is pathologic, this is not healthy, this person gives the impression of being a very committed practitioner, but it's not coming from the heart, from the real heart, from the self. It's just a mental thing that the person says, I'm going to reach now or never, I'm going to do something stupid. And the person is going to do something stupid because that is not the voice of God, that is not aspiration, that is very often a desperation, a frustration, something which is screaming in that person, and they think, now I'm going for nirvana. They are not going for any nirvana. They can actually reach even forms of severe mental disorder. And this common sense shloka and the next one, which says pretty much the same thing, they are the foundation of the middle path as described in Hinduism as compared to the middle path, to the golden middle as described in Buddhism. Even the Latin philosophers have a dictum which in Latin reads aurea mediocritas, which people interpret the golden mediocrity. But mediocritas doesn't mean mediocrity as being a mediocre person. Mediocrity means the middle. Aurea mediocritas means the golden middle. That always being in the middle, it's golden. That is the, the answer to the big question. It is very, very important if you learn to stay in the middle. The Zen teachers in the Japanese environment, they call that patience. They said patience is the ability to refrain from answering immediately to one of the seven emotions. Like you have too much hope, too much despair, too much anger, too much this. Stay in the middle. Don't go in it. Don't go in the opposite of it. Stay in the middle. This middle is the very fertile ground of enlightenment and of spiritual growth. And in the strophe number 17, Krishna continues basically giving the point, says, yoga becomes the destroyer of pain. That's always the quest of the great Hindu, Buddhist and Oriental philosophy. How to destroy pain, how to reach bliss, how to reach eternity, how to reach immortality, how to reach freedom. Always the spiritual realization is put under one of these. People are searching under one or another form for those. So, of course, Krishna expresses it in the language. Yoga becomes the destroyer of pain because people say, when will yoga destroy my pain? 
There are people who come and say, I have come to Agama, I have done one year of yoga, and sometimes I even have more pain than they had before. When will yoga finish my pain? Like people want to be in nirvana from step one. But that is not possible as long as Sahasrara is not open, as long as Sushumna Nadi is not open, and as long as the person has not reached Madhya, the center, only the center has no cold and hot, no hill and valley, and therefore no pleasure and pain. And thus, uh, people want it, but they very seldom understand what it involves, where it can come from. Yoga becomes the destroyer of pain for him who is always moderate in eating, in exertion, in recreation, who is moderate in sleep and wakefulness. Like exertion, moderate in walking or efforts, action, such as walking, walking, tracking or something. Says in the version of uh, Shivananda, for him who is moderate in food and recreation, moderate in effort, in actions, moderate in sleep and waking, for him is the yoga which destroys sorrow. So, that is to be meditated upon, really. Because if you feel you are extreme in some way, then you cannot expect. You see people. This is, there are people in India who like very much to move, especially people who are fire signs and air signs, unlike the water signs, and especially like the earth signs, which tend to be rather lazy, on the lazy side, slow. There are people, especially who are fire or air sometimes, that have fire up their asses, and constantly, constantly they want to exert. If they don't do yoga, they have to climb rocks, they have to bungee jump, they have to stretch, they have to go and do intense forms of yoga because the moderate forms of yoga are not enough for them. And that's, of course, a tendency of the mind which simply says, do this, do this, do this, do this, otherwise you are not good enough, otherwise your life is not fulfilled, <clears throat> otherwise you are not complete. Remember, yoga is about moderation. In India there is a whole tradition. There are modern people who call themselves yogis, and in the time of Svatmarama and in the time of Krishna, they would not have been called yogis, who just became a bunch of aggressive hooligans, which are very dynamic physically and very uh, impulsive, and they can't stand at all peace, and they keep tattooing themselves, inflicting pain on themselves, hanging by lianas in the trees, stretching themselves and bending at unnatural angles of their joints and so on, simply because they are possessed by a pathological desire to do more, 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 more. And everybody looking at them notices there is something pathological about those people. There is a very sad movie called Enlighten Up, in which a girl pays a journalist to go on a trip through different yoga courses and schools to see how a person can transform spiritually. And unfortunately, that man and that woman 
they reach almost exclusively ridiculous spiritual teachers and ridiculous schools. Not one single yogi. There is not a Ramana Maharishi. There is not a Satyananda or a Shivananda among them. How on earth are they supposed to make an experiment to evaluate yoga and they chose only the rotten eggs out of the basket? It's only Kali Yuga can explain such a strange coincidence in which people shoot and miss all the time. And there you see there are some of these teachers, they go into Hatha Yoga and some of these Hatha Yoga teachers are, you know, wild people. You can see of them. Hash smoking, drug consuming, full body tattooed, restless, angry, frustrated people who, after having been in the hippie generation for 40 years, now, because they are a bit older, they get proclaimed gurus or authorities. Those people are not gurus or authorities. Those people are fiascos, and they should be put in the window with a label on them. That's how you should not become. This is how you should not do yoga. Yoga is not this. These are damaged goods in yoga. And therefore, <clears throat> one should meditate a lot on this in all terms. Too much physical activity, too little physical activity, too much of this, too much of that, always reaching to a sort of balance, to a sort of temperance, to a sort of middle path. It's true that the middle path means one thing for one person and another thing for another person, for example, what is the middle path for a vata person, for a vata dosha person in terms of sleeping, is too little sleep for a person that is powerfully inclined towards kapha dosha. A Swami Shivananda cannot live the style of life of Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa is very vata and airy. Swami Shivananda is very earthy and heavy. And they too have midpoints which are different. Therefore, you cannot try to live in other people's shoes. <coughs> Models work only up till a certain model, <coughs> up till a certain point, I'm sorry. And of course, this is the function of a tradition. This is the function of a teacher. This is the function of the true wisdom to teach you a little bit about how to find your own midpoints. These two statements are quoted so often that yoga is working only when you choose a certain moderation in your life. And yet, unfortunately, I have seen so many people and so many examples of people whom I have not met directly who would go into extremes. I have seen people torturing themselves, not sleeping, not I've had friends who are not in yoga, but other forms of practice, they would go into Christian Orthodox prayer or others, and some of them destroyed themselves physically. They pushed themselves to some limits which were unhealthy, pathological, and still they could not see the lack of wisdom of it. That is why meditate constantly, how much you follow this middle path. You need to have some peace with yourselves for being able to live in this 
middle path. It's so easy to go into extremes of one type or another. And then Krishna continues giving metaphors. In this chapter, as you saw, Krishna gives so many models. He says how a yogi that is enlightened should be, how you can identify the state of wisdom and spiritual realization. How is this? He always gives, sets goals to Arjuna. Says, Arjuna, this is what you should aim towards. This is what is good. This is what is desirable in spirituality. And therefore, every shloka, every of these verses is a lesson to Arjuna. Because Arjuna obviously is in the extremes. He wants to either do something stupid or not do it at all. He goes into the extremes of the mind and he has no peace in him. All this discussion started because, because Arjuna had lost his peace and he was in great turmoil. And in the shloka number 18, <clears throat> then <clears throat> Krishna says, When the perfectly controlled mind rests in the self only, free from longing for the objects of desire then it is said he is united. United, union is yoga. He is united, he is in yoga, which is a way of Bhagavad Gita, of meaning the state of samadhi. Bhagavad Gita very often does not use the technical term of samadhi used by Patanjali and in yoga, which is a term which is partial to yoga, uh, I'm sorry, Bhagavad Gita and Krishna uses the term he has reached yoga, he is a yogi, he is in yoga. The term of samadhi actually has some strange connotations because when Buddha himself practiced his discipline, he was in the area of Bodhgaya and Varanasi and places like this, and he was practicing yoga together with some yogis who were not wise yogis. They were more like yogis practicing austerities and tapas. And the results were mostly that they were getting some siddhis and, or that they were getting simply neurotic because they were practicing extremisms like we spoke before. And the, unfortunately, because of that, the, Buddha, the Buddhist tradition does one thing, uses, makes a use of words which is not appropriate and turns sometimes some Buddhists, especially in the Theravada tradition, because in the Vajrayana tradition, Buddhism and yoga are very close to each other because of so many Tibetan yogis living in the uh, Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhist environment. But otherwise, there are people who think that yoga is inferior to Buddhism, for example, because Buddha himself did the yoga and then he realized that yoga was crap and it was leading only to some paranormal abilities but not to nirvana. And then Buddha chose something infinitely superior, which is the Buddhist path. That's because the yoga of which they talk is not the yoga of Patanjali. It's not the yoga of Matsyendra and Goraksha. It's not the yoga of Abhinavagupta and it's not the yoga of Ramakrishna. 
the yoga of which they talk is a yoga without God, is a yoga without spirit, it's a yoga without spiritual realization, it's a yoga without enlightenment, which is indeed people being blind. I told you, you cannot find God if God doesn't find you directly through grace or indirectly through a teacher, through a guru, through a lineage. And those people with whom Buddha was, they were selfish people, not possessed by grace. And because of this, they were doing an egocentric yoga without a lineage, a guru or anything, a compass to guide them. And because of this, all they could find was cities. They could push themselves a little bit more and discover another dimension of the mind, another power of the mind, and still that didn't make them happy. They couldn't reach bliss and nirvana because the mind does not contain nirvana or bliss in it. The nirvana, the samadhi, the bliss is beyond it. Unfortunately, because of that, many of you can be deluded because when you read some Buddhist texts, especially the Pali tradition, which is mostly preserved in the Theravada or Hinayana types of Buddhism, the southern forms of Buddhism, then it is even written literally because the words in Pali are very close to Sanskrit. Pali is a vernacular of India, a vernacular language. And there are different words, dharma is called dhamma, karma is called kama, and all sorts of words are slightly twisted because it's not pure Sanskrit anymore. And there, you, people would say, we, are, we in Buddhism, we are searching for nirvana, we are not looking for samadhi like those silly yogis of which Buddha himself was speaking. But for Ramakrishna, Samadhi means Nirvana. So how can somebody say we are looking for Nirvana, not for Samadhi? There must be a mistake somewhere because by definition, Nirvana is Samadhi and Samadhi is Nirvana. How can you look for Nirvana and not for Samadhi? And when you look at the explanation, you find out that Samadhi is not defined as the Samadhi of Patanjali or as the Samadhi of Ramakrishna. Samadhi is described actually as, and the word in Sanskrit, in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, which fits to it actually, is not at all Samadhi. Because Samadhi means Nirvana and the enlightenment, the opening of Sahasrara. The word is Samyama. Because they say what we mean is that those yogis look at an elephant and get absorbed in their meditation on the elephant and then they concentrate on the elephant until they reach Samadhi hoping to get the power of the elephant. It's exactly to the letter the way Patanjali describes Samyama, not Samadhi, which is a completely different word. Samyama is a process of yoga which indeed most of the time, with one exception, if you make Samyama on God, that's the exception. But otherwise, Samyama made on anything else, indeed generates paranormal abilities of the mind. Siddhis, paranormal powers. So yes, it is correct to say, I'm not interested to do Samyama with various things. First of all, I want to reach Samadhi, Nirvana, the spiritual realization, then if I will have the time, 
maybe I will look into that as a collateral accomplishment. But on my list of priorities, first of all, I want to reach the spiritual thing, which is the center, the fulcrum, the basis of everything. That is why I am saying this, because the Bhagavad Gita starts from using for the state of Samadhi the word yoga. He is in yoga. Other, other people use different words and thus a lot of confusion appears. <clears throat> Again, when his mind completely settled, is established in the self <coughs> alone, when he is free from craving for any pleasure, then is he said to be united, to be in yoga. Therefore, actually here Krishna answers to this dilemma by saying the way to be in yoga is to be to, to have your mind resting in the self only, which simply says your mind can be absorbed not into an elephant, not in your belly button chakra, not in the pole star on the sky, but in the higher self. That means there is one Samyama which makes exception and which does not yield paranormal powers. And that Samyama is Samyama with God, with the center. If you identify to the Supreme, then you are not going to get neither the power of the elephant, nor the power to see auras, nor the power to predict the future, nor the power of this and that, because the self is about something entirely different. And thus, here Krishna defines the Samyama, with the self as the only legitimate concentration or the first one to be aimed at. And he says again, when the perfectly controlled mind rests in the self only, how long time can you focus on God, on the supreme self, on the I am, on the who am I, on the I am that, on the I am Shiva, on the Soham or Hamsa or any form of expressing that, how long? For the beginner, you all know, 20 seconds is the limit of the concentration. After 20 seconds, the monkey mind starts creating other thoughts. And some of you who have done yoga for several months or maybe seasons, here with Agama, you can do a Trataka and sometimes you are blessed with three minutes, five minutes six minutes, more of uninterrupted, where everything seems to flow and it is amazingly focused and there is a coherent flow, there is a controlled expansion of the mind as we define meditation in the very third day of yoga here in the courses. So, the perfectly controlled mind does not go, it rests in the self alone. This is always the problem because for most people the self not being known, not being felt, not being experienced is boring. That's why for many people this type of meditation starts by being very boring because your mind is more happy surfing on the internet, reading a newspaper, watching a movie, talking to a friend 
touching yourself sensually or doing 112 other things because those things are triggering the senses and they are exciting in some way while the self for 99.9% of the people is not exciting and very few people have discovered the excitement of just going into yourself that going into yourself is one of the most exciting things in the world that that's where the real rabbit hole resides that's where you can really sink deep and deep and deep and like fall tumble endlessly into a deeper and deeper and deeper reality until you understand the very nature of that process of that falling and that is why the first thing is to learn to love the self to learn to love God to learn to love Shiva to learn to love to be with a pure consciousness because for most people the pure consciousness is too pure it's not exciting it has no asperities to cling to it has no juicy details no funny uh, things where you could uh, find some satisfaction and that of course shows that the monkey mind is still running the show and it says when the perfectly controlled mind rests in the self only free from longing for the objects of desire for example Ramakrishna Paramahamsa when he entered in Samadhi in his major state of Samadhi one of the major states of Samadhi he says in that moment like the whole universe from fell apart I found myself in this pure consciousness I still felt the infinite presence but I was not disturbed by the universe I was in a state of pure consciousness and he says the thoughts the different vrittis the different aspects of the ego the different thoughts in the mind still persisted spinning somewhere on the, onto the periphery of my mind for a while but and then slowly slowly they slow down like a wheel that is not pushed anymore like those things like if Ramakrishna would have been still very attracted to the outer things he would have jumped out of the state of Samadhi into some of those things which are still spinning ready to suggest some exciting subject for the mind but because Ramakrishna was so ripe for it and because he was prepared for it he stayed into that void and then the mind lost momentum because of not being fed exactly like a flywheel it started slowing down and slowing down and slowing down and he says at some point it all stopped and only then he experienced that state of Samadhi usually experience shows that this spinning wheel especially the first time or times when you go in Samadhi it will not stop before 25 minutes in the first 25 minutes of Samadhi there is always the tendency to come out of it because the mind is still there 
knocking at your door, so to speak. There is still a collateral peripheric activity of the mind, and that's what's happening to most people when they enter into samadhi. There are very few people who enter in samadhi, and when they enter, they are like knocked out with a baseball bat, and they go there for three hours, six hours, nine hours, non-stop, and the guru has to come and take them out of samadhi. No. When people go, it's like they can maintain it for three minutes, for five minutes, for something, and then suddenly they find themselves thinking about something. Even in samadhi, when it is not fully established, the mind is knocking at your door, the mind is just on the verge there, and the mind still tries, shouldn't we do something? Exactly as Krishna says, with a mind free from longing for the objects of desire. Like you say, yes, I have been in samadhi for about six minutes. Maybe it's time to eat a falafel. Maybe it's time to see a movie. Maybe it's time to do something. Like your monkey mind can spoil, up till a point, even a state of samadhi. Because you still desire those things, they still are attractive for it. For example, Ramakrishna said, I, for me it's difficult to get out of samadhi, and to get out of samadhi what I do most often is, I suggest to myself a very inferior desire, such as of eating something, doing something. I think Ramakrishna even mentioned in one of his discourses, among the inferior desires which he suggested, apparently he never did it physically, smoking a cigarette. Like, you know, he would simply say, exactly as a smoker is so much addicted to his smoking, I, Ramakrishna, I would like to get out of samadhi to smoke a cigarette. And everybody can say, but didn't you, Ramakrishna, lose connection with that? Yeah, he lost, but now he was creating it on purpose because he said, if I don't do that, I have no reason to come out of samadhi. Like, there is nothing which calls me back. I am in bliss. I am with God. Why should I come out of there? And he made himself come out of there even by using preposterous methods, such as I want to eat my falafel. Is that a reason to get out of samadhi for just a bloody falafel? It's not. But that's the way the mind works. The mind can spoil, and in the beginning, believe me, it will spoil some states of your samadhi. Those of you who will reach samadhi through the practice of yoga, it will spoil it by some ridiculous thing, which shows that there is, it is not free from longing for the objects of desire. There are still samskaras, there are still things, and that's why, while you still have this, life is still a struggle. You can go into the void, be brought out by your cigarettes or falafel or whatever it is, then go again. It's a struggle. It's not permanent. In the moment when Ramakrishna's spinning wheel stopped completely, Ramakrishna went into samadhi so much that he didn't want to come back anymore. And he spent six months on and off in samadhi time in which he should have separated from the body and died and it is a miracle and the help of another great yogi who was there that actually Ramakrishna did not die because he stayed too much in samadhi already detaching so completely from the physical world 
that he was basically ready to go, to disappear from this reality. So, when the perfectly controlled mind rests in the self only, free from longing for the objects of desire, then it is said he is united. To be only in the self. Very few people are satisfied with the self. Remember that yourself is yourself. That is why in a previous chapter which I commented, it was a very beautiful uh, shloka and a very beautiful grace that came with it. I was explaining to you because Krishna says the real yogi, the real spiritual person is happy in himself, through himself. People are usually happy not because they are something, but because they do something. People say, I may be very wonderful, but what have I done? And Krishna and others say, why do you have to do anything? That is a slavery. It is a conditioning. Your higher self cannot be conditioned even by that. Normal people say, these yogis are looking up their belly button and ask, who am I? They are useless parasites. Because those people are workaholics. That's exactly what Karl Marx said. A workaholic Taurus could invent this doctrine that people who spend their time in philosophy and religion and this, they are parasites. People should be proletarians. Work, produce. There is a proletarian doctrine, which in the communist countries were repeated at nauseam, that uh, it is work which made man. Man was made by work, not by prayer, not by awareness. Man was made by work. If you work, you are a decent citizen. Shame on the lazy ones. But Milarepa, from the standpoint of the society, he was a lazy one. Because he didn't work for anybody. He didn't do anything. How do you and I know that Milarepa did 30 years of meditation? Because he says so. Maybe he just spent them in a nice place masturbating all day long. We don't know. Nobody has checked Milarepa. Milarepa says that he has been on a mountain eating stinging nettles until his skin turned green. But it's an urban legend as far as I and you are concerned because there is no proof. No scientist would accept that. Scientists today, they don't even want to accept that Jesus existed because they say there are not enough proofs. So then you cannot demonstrate anything. There are people in the 15th century about whom we cannot demonstrate that they existed because there, are, there is not enough historical or archaeological evidence about them. So what I'm trying to say here is human beings are oriented towards this utilitarianism, efficiency. You are in the physical world, you have to do something. And Krishna, and it's not only him, says... You have to be happy through yourself. Like if you are alone like Robinson Crusoe on an island and you don't start building things like Robinson Crusoe did because he was trying to fill the gap. Robinson Crusoe theoretically could have become like Milarepa. But Robinson Crusoe is a failed Milarepa because instead of doing meditation, he starts building huts, 
He starts making irrigation channels. He starts doing farming. Imagine Milarepa on his mountain, losing track of his spiritual practice and started starting building architectural improvements to his habitat. Then he's not. I have seen monks in Mount Athos who are supposed to spend their life in prayer and all they do is that they grow olives from olive trees and they do farming. They are just gentle farmers who go dressed in black and are famed to be monks. But their prayer is just voluntary work, patriotic work. You know, they do farming. That's not why they were sent there. That's not why they went there when they were young to spend a life in farming olives and other vegetables and so on. That's why I'm saying here it is very difficult for people. That's the hell of the mind that the mind always tries to have something while the self simply says I don't need anything. I am. I am wonderful. I am divine. I don't need to do anything to prove that I am divine. I am satisfied with me as I am. I love myself because I look at myself and I see Shiva. I see the divine consciousness. And therefore there is nothing. We live like Leibniz said. We live in a perfect world. We live in the best world that there can be. There is no improvement to bring to anything. Things are exactly as they are supposed to be. Everybody has exactly what they deserve. From the standpoint of Ajna and especially Sahasrara, the whole universe is a music of spheres and it's a total harmony. There's nothing to be done. But this initiative which comes from Manipura, this restlessness, this impatience, this sense of frustration and of unfulfillment, which says, I haven't done that, I should do that, I am so imperfect, I haven't reached this, I haven't reached that. Abhinavagupta says very clearly, be exactly as you are. Don't lose anything, don't gain anything, just take part in the miracle of the whole. But that's the problem, people cannot be satisfied with that. The mind is the biggest torturer, the biggest executioner in the universe, because the mind always creates the impression, the illusion, that you need to do something, that you should do something. Even we, when we teach yoga, we don't tell you that you don't need anything, because you cannot understand it at that level. That's a monistic level, and the teachings are not given at a monistic level, except occasionally in a commentary like this, because Krishna brings it up, and in advanced teachings, when people are ready to see that side. Because people in the beginning, they say, I need to do Padahastasana to activate my Muladhara Chakra and to solarize it. And then we can say, no, you don't actually. That's just your mind which tortures you by projecting in front of you an image of that. But then nobody would do anything. And that would kill the spiritual practice. And that's jumping from the extreme of being needy to the extreme of being lazy and indifferent. And again, one would not find the middle path. And that's why the middle path to be found, of course in the beginning you do something, because rising your energy, 
rising your level of consciousness, subliming, purifying and doing such things, of course increases your chance considerably to hit the jackpot of the higher consciousness and to start understanding some of these things. Krishna in the number 18 says when the mind completely settled, established in the self alone, happy with the self, nothing else, free from craving for any desires or objects of desires, which means with the samskaras diminished. That is the very, very difficult thing. Learn to be happy that you are. I'm happy that I exist. God says, who are you? asks Moses. And God says, I am he that I am. I am the I am. Like, I don't need to do anything. I just am, and that makes me God. I am, and no, God doesn't say, I am strong, I am good, I am smart. He says, I am. I am he that I am. I am the I am. This is very, very important because it shows you where the spiritual consciousness goes in loving yourself, in identifying yourself, in seeing yourself, and in reaching a satisfaction with yourself. The, the fathers of the desert, some, not all of them, were practicing a terrible discipline which was called akedia, which in Greek means boredom. Like the whole thing was exactly not to do anything. You locked yourself into a whitewashed cell, no paintings, no icons, no books, no nothing. Like a Zen cell. Wherever you looked, you saw white walls and you stayed in there. And if you wanted to sleep, sleep. Let's see how much you can sleep. For the next 10 years, you are locked in this room and you'll have your food, don't worry. Very moderate food, nothing gluttonly. So you'll stay in this room. You want to masturbate? Okay, masturbate. Let's see how many months can you masturbate until you get bored of that or tired of it. Like, eventually, you simply freak out because you can do nothing. And this was making some people snap completely. There are stories in the Fathers of the Desert where a young brother gets out of his cell, which was the sin. Like, that's exactly what you shouldn't do. Under no circumstances should you get out of your cell. So he gets out of the cell and an, one of the elders was vigilant or happened by synchronicity, by divine grace, to be there. And he sees the young brother and he says, brother, where do you go? And he says, you know, the water pipe is broken or some shit like that. He always had an excuse. Everybody has an excuse, always. And the old man who knew very well what the story was, he says, get back. There is no water pipeline to be fixed. Get back. You know, like, forget about the water pipeline. It's not your job anyway. You know, it's like now in the middle of your isolation, you get an itch in your ass to get out and fix that water pipeline. Don't. This is what's happening to people who go in a retreat. Some people go for 10 days in a retreat. By the third day, they have fever and they have to go to the hospital. Why? That's a way of the subconscious mind of saying anything is better than the fucking retreat and sitting 10 hours there and getting bored. Go to the hospital and, you know, the subconscious mind says, I'll give you a fever. I'll give you rashes on the skin, boils and pimples, whatever. Just get out of the effing retreat 
and go because meeting with the doctor in the hospital will give some variety to your life. It's nothing else. People who are experienced in spirituality, they know the mind is a monkey and the, mon the mind always wants to masturbate and it wants excitement, diversity. And this is how you recognize the spiritual person. The spiritual person can stay alone. The spiritual person can stay silent. The spiritual person can spend long time with themselves without doing anything special. There is a proverb which I liked very much when I was young. I don't know where it comes from. Maybe some of you know its origin. Which says, if you get bored when you are alone, it means you haven't got much to tell to yourself. Like you are pretty poor in your psyche. You know, normally a person that is very rich and very deep inside can talk to themselves for a lifetime. You don't get bored when alone because you are a microcosm. You are a universe. You are God yourself. The universe is in you. If you get bored and it's very superficial, then you need somebody or something to break in your universe, to break in your life and to tickle you to excite you with something. This is the sad truth about the mind and that is why Krishna says a very fine thing here to rest the mind in the self alone free from the longing of the objects of desire. We have to learn to be happy with ourselves. In Tantra, I said it before, a woman loves a man and she says, not I'm happy that you brought me flowers. That of course creates a mental satisfaction. But she, can, she simply says, I'm happy that you exist. That's all. It's like, I don't know how the universe created you to be here in the 21st century with me. But I, the only thing I'm happy about is I'm happy you exist. I'm not even able to ask you to do something for me because that would be selfishness. I'm not happy that you provide for me. I'm not happy that you look handsome. I'm not happy that this and... I'm happy that you exist. The very existence. And if you can be happy that somebody else exists, that you can be happy that you exist. Why are you so happy about yourself? Nothing. I'm just happy that I exist. Existence itself pure existence, my existence, I am, makes me happy. The very fact to be or not to be, that is the question. Existence versus chaos. God is pure existence. If God would be no existence, we would have no existence. All existence derives from the pure existence of the I am, of the absolute consciousness. Therefore, what's the ultimate satisfaction? When Shiva is happy, why is Shiva happy? Because he exists. Shiva likes his own belly button very much. He's very, very happy with himself. And for Shiva, you are only a part of Shiva. That's why all the cosmic game is like a drama which happens inside the soul, the spirit of Shiva. That's why Shiva is happy for himself. That's not egocentrism. That is 
the true finding yourself. This is the narcissus myth of looking in the water, falling in love with yourself and reaching enlightenment, reaching purity. When narcissus dies, he is not transforming into a heap of dung because he was an egoistic bastard. In the Greek myth, when Narcissus dies, in the place where he died, a beautiful white flower sprouts, and that's the Narcissus flower, the whitest of all the flowers, symbol of purity. In cultural talks, Narcissism is a bad thing, because it basically means egocentrism and selfishness. But in the original Greek myth, that was not the meaning of it. The meaning was that Narcissus looked at himself and he said, my God, how beautiful I am. I can't go further than here. That's exactly what Milarepa also discovered. I am sufficient unto myself, just being myself. There is a, there is a method which Byron or one of the English classical poets was using, uh, repeating your own name like a mantra. Simply taking your own basic name, the baptismal name or whatever it is, and repeat it. Repeat it thousands of times until it loses any meaning. And then you get into a very strange space because you are repeating a word which is me. And at the same time, it lost all meaning. And that's a method for reaching even to some forms of states of samadhi related to jivatman, to atman and other such things. The same thing is used when we teach people a form of Trataka in the mirror, which we teach in the Kundalini program because it's a bit of a challenging, even a bit dangerous method. So we don't teach it in the beginning, but it's a method in which you basically look at yourself. That's n it doesn't develop any selfishness. On the contrary, it gives images from the previous lives and it gives an amazing feeling of detachment from this condition, realizing that this condition is part of a multiple existential condition. So this is difficult to understand, and another standard set, another challenge, another stake set by Krishna, in which he explains, by through which he explains, the mystery of the self, the mystery of the spiritual life, and this eternal dialogue that the mind is not the self. The mind is a caricature of the self. The mind mocks for the self, to pretends to be the self, but it is not. And as long as you are in the mind, you go into extremes, not on the middle path, you cannot be satisfied with yourself. You cannot really love yourself. You cannot have this peace that the self is enough. Many, many people. I met people who went to Chom Tong a Monastery in the north of Thailand and did there their 21-day retreat. And then when coming back, they said, it was good. I experienced great peace. But... It was the, definitely the most boring 21 days in my life. Because sitting there and doing only this, yes, I have self-discipline, I have patience, I could do it, 
but it was like, you know, from the standpoint of the mind, it's like you feel like banging your head against the wall. It's like nothing is happening. This, for many people, these states of void, of middle path, they are as scary as death itself. That's why there is, of course, a huge connection between death, void, as manifested in the cosmic power of Dumavati in Tantra, the power of the void, and also governing death, annihilation, and <coughs> all dematerialization, the void in general. With this, we are concluding for tonight. We stop at this. Our last strophe was number 18. We will soon be ready with the chapter number 6, which is purported to be our last chapter. A decision has not been taken. There are 47 strophes here. We are halfway through this chapter. <coughs> Let us conclude our satsang of tonight by sitting in silence for a couple of minutes, allowing the subconscious mind to absorb in peace some of the important yogic meanings of the teachings of Krishna as presented in this wonderful, profound and rich Bhagavad Gita <coughs> that we are analyzing here, that we have been analyzing here for a while now. A bit of silent meditation. And that will do with this. We have finished. Namaste to all of you. We stop here. I'll meet you in the next satsang.